With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we were in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom. More rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. Hello, hackaroos. Well, it looks like it is Soul of America 1, Fox News 0 in the early innings here. Welcome to Hacks on Tap. This was going to be a Gibbs and uh, Axelrod episode. But uh, David had to go open a car lot somewhere, but he is still calling in from our special Hacks One mobile unit somewhere in southern Illinois. And I'm here to keep this from being some Democratic loving, but to keep it smart because I bring it down, we have a really good guest, Robert. Who do we have today? Well, let me introduce her, uh, but let me tell it through a very quick story, Murphy. True story, God's honest truth. Last week, I'm out and about, somebody recognizes me, shakes my hand. And their eyes get big. Can I ask you a question? Just one question? And I said, sure. And they said, do you know Jen Psaki? (laughs) True story. True story. So not only, Murphy, do I know Jen Psaki, boom. (laughs) No, no. I said, indeed, I do know her. And I'm happy to say, Murphy, Jen, Axe, she is our guest today. Uh, on the great Hacks on Tap. So, Jen, thank you for joining us. She's the host of Inside with Jen Psaki and an esteemed former White House press secretary. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. We're all big fans. Let me do the plug. It runs Sundays at 12 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So check it out. Big new hit on MSNBC. Axelrod, do we have you calling in from Mobile One? I do. Like, I wasn't going to disrupt my car, uh, my car lot appearance uh, for you guys. <laughs> but when I heard Saki was going to be on here uh, and the president was going to, in order to enhance her appearance here, make his announcement today. We're so grateful I, uh, for that. To join you guys. <laughs> I know. I know. It was plan. really, really yeah. nice of him. It was really nice of him. But uh, yeah, guys, good to see you. Jen Saki is, is the absolute best. Gibbs and I can attest to it so uh always a pleasure to be with her and you too murphy oh thank you thank you <laughs> all right well this is uh this is a gonna be a fun one because we got real stuff to talk about 
Uh, you heard a little lick of the soundtrack from a three-minute video the Biden campaign announced today because they announced following the advice from an episode or two on Hacks on Tap, by the way. Uh, <laughs> they got out and declared there he's now a candidate. The race is on. Uh, why don't we start with the video? And uh, Axe, since you're doing the live report from the video capital of the world in rural <laughs> Illinois. Um, Springfield, Illinois. Home of Lincoln. Yeah. What do you think as an old ad maker? Well, well, I think the production was fine and it was very energetic, which I think was part of the mission here was to connote energy. Um, I, I don't know if, if it was a distillation of the campaign message uh, moving forward. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure about it. I think it was a video that will uh, probably land well with people in the Democratic base. And maybe their thought was we need to gin up that base. Uh, but uh, it, uh, you know, President Biden actually has um, accomplishments. Uh, he has, uh, uh, you know, a lot of things to his credit. You wouldn't necessarily know that uh, from this video. So it's an interesting choice to leave those out. The other thing that I think it answered two questions. He's running and Kamala Harris is running with him because she was all over uh, this this video and that probably and that was obviously intentional uh as well but i I, you know i I wonder how this video which obviously portends a a rematch with trump i wonder how it lands with these swing voters and whether that they there needs to be more uh you know uh for them and uh but you can't do everything in a uh opening video so but I'm eager uh, to hear what all you geniuses think. <laughs> well, let's see. We're we're go with guest genius Jen first, then Robert, and then I'll back clean up here with the nasty Republican take. Well, I mean, first I would say the video because we know now everybody announces via video pre- presidential candidates, right? A week or more before they do an actual event, and I'm sure he'll do some sort of big event at some point. But to me, what I heard in the video was. This finish the job argument, which is similar to what then President Obama argued, too, when he was running for reelection. And don't be complacent, which is like the core of one of the issues they're going to face is energizing people and getting the base out and then largely a values argument. So, you know, civil rights, voting rights, uh, things along those lines that are, yes, excitement things for the base. But are also, I don't think they've made a calculation they're not going to talk about accomplishments, but a race against Trump is so different, right? It's not going to be like a 57-page policy plan versus 57-page policy plan. A lot of it will be values-based, probably, like, that's crazy, this is good, we're going to fight for your rights, they're not. So I think that probably a lot of the themes as of now is what we'll hear from them, but, um, you know, that's that, that's my take. Robert? Yeah, I agree with both David and Jen. I mean, I think this video is more for April 25th, 2023 than it may be for uh, September 25th, 2024. I agree that, you know, the, the the upfront is, and we see it, you know, even just last Friday with healthcare in the Supreme Court and abortion, uh, that this is probably more tilted towards getting that base excited. Agree with Axe, the energy in the video, the quick cuts, uh, you know, the, the, the movement, uh, was clearly there. I think they will. And you saw this at his later event, uh, speaking to the building trades, heavy on accomplishments, yeah. heavy on economy, 
heavy on middle class, which I think, quite frankly, is is what he's going yeah. to lead with, and then get into the ultimate contrast. So I think this was a April 25th, 2023 video. We're in. You're with me. Let's get excited. And then the argument of how to exactly run for president and do his stump speech is uh, is still something we'll have to wait and see writ large. Yeah, I'm waiting to see the actual paid advertising. These videos are kind of a media cycle thing. And yeah. I think they can be overrated in importance, but they do set the narrative. I gave it a B plus on Twitter, mostly because our Labradoodle puppy had jumped up on my lap and I was in a good mood. <laughs> I, 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 but I think it's whatever so, it so. takes, Murphy, whatever yeah, it no, takes. You Democrats will work any angle. I, um, I thought I had a mixed reaction. I thought it's totally base child. Uh, and maybe that's the move to make now. I'm sure they're feeling some of the poll numbers. I saw this NBC news poll that, uh, POS, a Republican firm did, but a respected one that shows 53% of Biden voters from last time say, please don't run again. So they've got work to do. So they got out the Buddy Rich drum impersonator with the rapid drumming and the quick cuts, uh, which I thought was a little overkill. It was kind of obvious. As, as from the production point of view, I thought it was bare minimum competent. I didn't feel an emotional connection or high spot. But he did set up the war that the primary voters want. Now he's got to take it to middle class economics with the real campaign and a little bit of his story. You know, these things should be storytelling. At the most difficult time, a country torn apart, an honest man was elected. You know, I want a little more of that and not chop it a chop it. He's not old. How fast is that drummer? That's him. You know, so so <laughs> yeah. I think from an execution point of view, pretty flat, but it was enough opening message for the base shirt. Well, it answered the two questions that they needed answered. Obviously, I mean, everything that you see suggests that this was a late breaking decision to release the video yeah. this day. And they, you know, they, I mean, they're interviewing campaign managers leading up to the day they're announcing this video. They, they you know, so, uh, I think that part of the haste, uh, that was part of the, 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 uh, you know, why the video may not be exactly what they want. I did go back and look at the video that he did four years ago, and it was much more uh, emotionally gripping than this one. Uh, you know, I, and I think it reflected a lot more time and thought uh, than this one did. But here's the thing, you know, um, he is the president of the United States right now. I think what he's signaling now is just as the last time, you know, he's going to, He's going to try and put the focus on Trump, and he doesn't want this to be a referendum. Uh, look, just as Obama did in 2012, we, you know, we worked very hard for a year to make sure that that race was not a referendum, but a choice. And he was setting that up here. But I do think when you're president, you've got to tell a story about what you've done and yeah. what, where you've been. And, uh, and that wasn't here. And I thought it was interesting that the first hit he did after this video was an economic hit where he talked about middle-class economics, as Gibbs mentioned. I actually think that's important. And uh, I kind of would I would have liked a little bit more of Scranton Joe in this thing. Yeah, they've got that great Scranton Joe story, though I got to say, late-breaking news, the president likes it. Because he just tweeted, I am running. Check out my talkie. Okay, that joke landed <laughs> with a thud. Uh, go ahead, Jen. Yeah. Hannah, can we get a puppy over to Murphy for the rest of this <laughs> podcast? Because... By the way, I don't want to hear what's, I don't want to hear Murphy about what's jumping in your lap. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, oh. Now I've got to unforget that. Dogs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think in that same NBC poll you mentioned, uh, Mike, 
also the majority of people who did not want him to run did not want him to run because of his age. Right. right. And it's possible right. to overthink that um, and over worry about that, because part of what people like about him is what everybody's just talked about. Right. The Scranton Joe, the kind of uh, somebody who pulled himself buff by his bootstraps. That's his story. Well, it's just a decent, honorable guy. Yeah. And he's an honorable guy. Yes, of course. But I do think the age the energy yeah, it's out up there. for the I job agree. is like every single and and acts and gives and and you all have seen a lot of polling know this every week in the White House you know you would get when I was still there which was almost a year ago but it was still a case then you would get a little bubble you know polling bubble of like the word yeah. bubble right and it was age and up to the job yeah. always the thing that pops so yes you can overthink that but I think clearly in this that was on their minds as it should be um, and you can see that. But you know what? Here's my prediction, and I and I, I'm I'm loath to uh, make too many predictions in this very volatile political environment. But I don't think he's going to get younger. Okay, that's not the way it works. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's okay, Kreskin. I think you're right. They're going to have to figure out. It. You know, his answer has always been, "Well, watch me." I'm not sure that you know he's going to have to have. I think better answers about the value of his experience and the value of those uh, years. And, you know, but I mean, the question, the, the question on the age thing that is so hard to answer is like, you, I'm watching you, you're doing great now. If people, you know, a lot of people worry about him now, but you're doing great now, but how do I know what you're going to be like when you're 83 and 84? And uh, that's a, that's a tough one to answer, but the one one way you deal with it is compared to what? A guy who's 76, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> right. No spring chicken. Yeah. If it's him. If it's him. If it's him. Yeah. Yeah. Or twice impeached, uh, multiple indictments. Yeah. The only route they've got is make the accomplishments, the hell yes stuff so big, he can score big in a debate by saying, not bad for an old guy, huh? And it's it's locked and loaded because he's earned that cred, but he's not there yet because yeah. nobody knows the strong stuff he did often with Republican help. Yeah, like for instance, Joe Biden can say, hey, "Look, Donald Trump, I'm older than you. You talked about infrastructure every week. I got it done, right?" That there, there's something to your uh, line on that, Murphy. I mean, I think we should just step back here because the structural um, guts of the video are obviously uh, interesting to analyze, and it fills up podcasts. Uh, for instance, I do think the, Thank the, God. the yeah. one, yeah, nothing that, wrong no, with right. that, pal. What, Don't, what, what else would we talk about? Don't pull the, the thread on that big sweater. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, the, <laughs> the, the mechanical of this is very simple, right? They need to start raising money because they're going to have to raise a few billion dollars and they have to start building a campaign. None of which you can do until you put out a video and file a statement of candidacy and say you're going. So I definitely think this is They've got, look, they've got a long time on the message stuff. They're going to see it every day out of the Rose Garden in the White House. But I think a structurally sound, very smart move to get on with the building of a campaign, to get on with the raising of money, it takes a long, long time to build that. You don't snap yeah, yeah, your fingers yeah. even as the president and have a national campaign that's humming and a couple of billion bucks in the bank to tell people about your accomplishments and color in the lines of your opponents. And they say they're going to start up with the paid ad soon. So when they go wide and serious, it'll be interesting to see. Now, speaking of building out a staff, what do we think of these senior staff appointments? Caveat, 
in a presidential reelect, the campaign manager is not the campaign manager. They're sitting in the White House. Yeah, exactly. Right, and the, exactly. the campaign manager is the worst job because somebody in the White House screaming, you know, we need the plane to fly upside down today as part of our new topsy-turvy yeah. uh, thing. But I, I, I don't know the people. I know the campaigns. I saw Warnock for the deputy manager. I thought, smart. I saw Kamala Harris for president. I thought, holy crap. Am I being unfair-ish a little? Your, your first point was the right one. These guys are going to execute whatever the direction and orders are coming from the White House. The question is, um, you know, we, and we, you know, David Plouffe was in the White House in 2012. He was very, you know, he, he was an important voice. I don't know what happens when you have three or four voices in the White House, when you have not just a sort of political person in the White House who's deeply involved with the campaign, but like a Politburo who has to, <laughs> who are just, you know, I, I ah, think that, irony. so that, you know, the question is, is there going to be clear and consistent direction from the White House or are these guys going to be thrashing it out among themselves? Is there going to be confusion among the, uh, among the, the folks who are at the campaign and have to implement that? But Saki, you, uh, you know, uh, you worked with a new manager, so why don't you talk about her? Yeah. I mean, one, I, I would say Julie has like a really fascinating backstory. Not that this makes you a better campaign manager, but she's like a really interesting person. She, What you should know about her is she's very, very close, just to kind of echo what everybody said, to Jen O'Malley Dillon, um, who ran the last campaign um, and is still in the White House and will unquestionably have a role in um, how this is strategically going to go. Um, as well as Anita Dunn, who, same thing, had a role in the last campaign. We all know her well um, and is it, it, no question going to have a role in how this is all going to go. Um, there is, I would say, I mean, you know, this the streamlined nature of David Pluff in 2012 is a rarity, right? I probably in politics, I don't have a zillion things to compare it to. So it definitely won't be as streamlined as that. But Julie is somebody who is very close to them. I think she'll have like a very clean line with them. Um, and yeah, you're kind of your implementers in many ways when it's a real act on the campaign. Although you want to have people who are smart and competent and well-respected. And she certainly is within that orbit. They might need a choir master, though. I'm, I'm with Axe's point. about That's a lot of folks. We're see. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see a big, calm Washington down name brand like Ron Klain show up a little later, people start freaking because some bumper sticker wasn't put on right, which is just the disease all presidential reelects have to fight. Yeah. I mean, this is clearly a structure that makes Joe Biden comfortable. Yeah. Right? It's how yeah, they ran the absolutely, 2020 campaign. Absolutely. Good point. It's how he's run. I mean, the people that are closest around him at that small table have been there for 30 years. You know, we're going to talk a little bit later about our book club. I recommend what it takes. Uh, by Richard Ben Kramer. And I think that, you know, one of the interesting things about that book is Joe Biden's in that book, right? Those people that are around him in that book are around him now. It makes him comfortable. I, I don't think that the biggest thing you have to do with a campaign is make a candidate comfortable, but it's obviously important because that comfort means that he trusts their judgment. And again, it, it worked in 2020. If there's a rematch, presumably uh, it's the right structure for now. Yeah. I mean, I would also say people have different versions of roles. There isn't actually a circle of 20 people that are that are super close to him. It's small. Um, and that can be critiqued, too. I mean, but 
you know, Mike Donilon is the person he's going to always look to. He's finalizing a speech and be like, Mike, what do you think? Right. That's always Mike's role. Mike is somebody who he trusts on kind of what polling is actually saying. Mike is not going to get in there and be managing what the strategy is to win Georgia. So, and no, you know, he doesn't want to do that and nobody expects him to. Um, You know, Ron, obviously on the outside, he's just like a person who's a type A driver of stuff. What role he plays, I think at some point is an interesting question, although he's now on the outside at a law firm and I don't know. But yeah, at the end, always people kind of freak out to your point. It's not, but it's not Steve Reschetti, obviously, is like a person who's very close to the president, but he has an entire job dealing with members in Congress and keeping them aligned and in line around a campaign. That's also important. So, yeah, there, there'll definitely be, I'm certain, debates and disagreements, but it's not as if there's 30 people and they all have slightly different lanes. That's a good point. And the choir has been singing together for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they you know, they've made that work in Biden world in the past. Well, you're right that the choir director is the president himself, and every campaign sort of reflects the, the the nature and the style of the person at the top. You know, the one we had reflected Obama. This reflects Biden. He likes he likes the you know the group of voices around him, and he makes uh, decisions. Uh, you know, ultimately based on all their input. But I, you know, we'll see how we'll see how it goes. I will say this, I just double click for a second on Jen's point, which is everybody has to know their role, right? Whether it's two people or 20 uh, executing that, it's waking up every day knowing what you have to do to move the ball forward and getting this done. And it essentially connects Murphy and, and acts your points about sort of the concern uh, on some, but also Jen's understanding of both who that inner circle is and understand, and, and they've got to all understand what's their job. Right. Every day, focus on what it's, you know, it's Bill Belichick, right? Focus on your assignment and let everybody else focus on theirs. And the president will call Ted Kaufman still, of course. He will call Ron Klain. He will call Chris Coons. He has a circle of people he checks in with and calls to who aren't necessarily implementers as much as advisors, which that can have its own level of annoyance. I think we can all speak to probably acts and gives <laughs> sure. even more than me. Yeah. But it's a similar circle it, there, too. <laughs> it drove them crazy when I'd call Obama. What, what, what are these clowns doing, Barack? Jeez. Drove him crazy, too. <laughs> <laughs> Quit calling my phone. So how did this guy get my number? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that I'm rolling down the highway from Springfield back to Chicago, and I got I to gotta run. So I'm going to jump off here and uh, just let all the collective wisdom of you three carry us the rest of the way. And with Saki, you've got a good chance to get there, too. So, uh, <laughs> Well, thank you, Axe. Live correspondent crossing into yes. the Chicago line now after some kind of heist in southern Illinois. We'll get details <laughs> later. We'll see you soon, pal. Bye, Axe. See ya. Bye. All right. So why don't we dive into the... Uh, the, the big uh, Crocodile Dundee knife had, did a little chopping this weekend with Tucker Carlson, apparently 10 minutes before the terse statement went out, getting a call from somebody saying no need to come to work anymore. They didn't even give him a goodbye show. Boy, I think Rupert's been watching Succession for tips because that was a cold-blooded execution. Yeah. What, what, what do you guys think? You want to go, Gibbs? Do you want to start? <laughs> Gibbs? You're cold-blooded. What do you think? I mean, part of what I'm dying to know is, so let me get this straight, guys. Of all the crazy, racist, demagogic, 
shit that Tucker Carlson wrote out, rolled out on his show for however many years, the great replacement theory, all this just nutty, nutty, Beyond. nutty, racist yeah. stuff. Yep. Was it a few texts that the company wasn't run that well that pushed Rupert over the line? Like, I'd feel better if Rupert and Lachlan and, the, the, and, and were watching Roman and Kendall and Logan and were thinking, boy, we've really got to think about what we're doing to the information ecosystem and what we're doing to this country. But I think they really just like started checking texts about, boy, they're making he's making fun of us in a lawsuit where the text got subpoenaed. So I, I you know, I'm I'm glad that it's I'm glad the vitriol is off the TV. I don't trust Fox to not replace it with something that's each equally yeah. vitriolic because Tucker Carlson made Rupert and Lachlan a ton of money. Yeah. And at the moment, they didn't like what what they were being asked at cocktail parties about what Tucker was saying about them. Then they got rid of them. Yeah. And there's a convenience because it makes it look like they got rid of somebody who was tarnished and maybe legally problematic, maybe legally problematic. I mean, I think your last point there, first of all, they they have fired people before, Bill O'Reilly, others, right? Right. And they replaced them with people. So this notion, which I don't think most people believe, but that this is an indication that they are moving into a more responsible and democratic approach or strategy for their network does not seem to be based in any reality of the past, right? They can replace Tucker with someone who may not be have the appeal of Tucker. He is like the most successful cable host today and maybe for a long has been for a long time. But they can just replace him with who Jesse Water. I mean, one of these other people who have don't have problematic text, maybe aren't as a, embroiled with all of this but still are going to do the same type of stuff um, the that circus they have rolls long on. history of. Exactly. <laughs> the circus rolls on. The, the network is bigger than the personality. Yeah, look, I think they can call Fox Central casting, and it, the new talent won't have the zip and the zass of Tucker. But I, I think also, fundamentally, I mean, I used to tease my friend Bill Crystal when he ran the Weekly Standard, because every year he had to go up to News Corp, and, you know, those magazines run at a deficit. And we, we would just... Or, you know, well, how's your meeting with Rupert going to be? Listen to me, professor. All I want to say more sex and violence in the standard or into the crock pit with you. You know, I mean, he's a tough character. And this guy just cost him 800. Well, this guy in the Gestalt there cost him $800 million and the tab is still running. And I'll tell you one thing about Rupert. All I can count, you know, so I think it's both optics and a talent problem. And the rumors I hear, and they're just rumors. So Sue Gibbs, Ooh. uh dominion rumors but um, do tell tucker liked the text and tucker really liked the text when he was angry and he liked to use certain words you don't use in polite company and he had opinions about all the people up the chain some of which he liked some of which he didn't and i have a feeling that inside fox that's been widely read maybe even by the roop and uh you know as as they say in the back uh Lands of Australia, when you got a crazy dingo, well, you do, shoot it. Sorry for the bad Australian accent. <laughs> but the point is, it he's bad for business. But, you know, the, the thing that is so weird to me, Tucker used to be a friend of mine. I knew Tucker back in the old days. Good guy, smart magazine writer, really talented. Always a little quirky and contrarian, but sane. Then Faust showed up, and here we are. So it's kind of a tragic story, too, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, tragic. He's lost a job now at CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. There should be there should be some color coded metal that goes along with <laughs> the trifecta. With something I like mean, that. 
It feels like he's going to be okay. Yeah, I was going to say. No, no. He's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps. Russia Today is calling. So let me bounce this off you guys. Does his next thing have a material effect on American politics? Does he start his own streaming network? Is he the new OAN guy? Will that be meaningful? Does he announce today he's running for president? Or does he announce, we've made a deal, I'm going to be Trump's vice president? God help us. And then we got the dream team. What do you think he might do? Because I I think his media career is viable, but it'll be tarnished now. Without that big microphone, it's not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. But is there something outside the box he could do that would really impact the next cycle, on at least the Republican primary side? I'm not sure, but I'm curious what you think. Crazier things have happened. Also, if you're him and you run with Trump because crazier things have happened, then it, you can kind of rebuild yourself. Not not that he needs to rebuild himself in the base necessarily, but he can kind of like be relevant, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like, how is he? Re- how can he be relevant and like clean some of the tarnish off for a, a minute? But I don't even know how much he needs to. He still has a huge following of people who are mad that he was fired. So anything's yeah. possible. Gibbs, what do you think? My guess is that lo- half the shock in Republican land was... Exactly the question you're asking, Murphy, is, oh, God, what's he going to do next? Yeah. Right. Because, you know, uh, and you watched it. People would go on that show and they'd bend toward what Tucker wanted to hear. I mean, that's after all, that's how Ron DeSantis got into Ukraine as being a territorial dispute, as if, you know, as if. Although, to be fair, Ron DeSantis filled it out. Right. right. He wrote it. It wasn't that right. he was asked. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was this yep. Southern Alabama had invaded the panhandle of Florida and therefore it was yeah. a territorial dispute. But, I, you know, I, my guess is there's a lot of nervousness in, in Republican land about what it means. You know, is he going to come in and start, you know, poking at us? Is he going to start driving the train in a decidedly different way? You could imagine it could make Kevin McCarthy's life uh, miserable. It could make any of the Republican yeah. nominees miserable. My guess is that he is, I mean, I think there's a whole legal bent to this that we're not getting into. I think, you know, obviously there's a discrimination suit. Um, and to your point, Murphy, there may be a lot of, uh, a lot of texts, a lot of, uh, uh material and evidence that are going to get weighed through. But my guess is that he's going to want to strike while the iron's hot. And every day that he's not in behind that big microphone and anybody else is, is a day people right, are moving exactly. from him to somebody Someone else. else. Yeah. I think he has to flood the zone somewhat quickly. I mean, look at Keith Oberman. He he's like running a Quiznos right now. And you know, he had his moment of being the king of the world. He's still out there. But if you don't have those magic vitamins, it that half-life, yeah. the magic vitamin of the big microphone, that half-life starts to eat away. So I think he's either gotta be a messiah and go do a streaming network and try to have his cult. Or find an interesting way to be big on the national stage, which could be a presidential yeah. campaign, or be chairman of the Trump Super PAC, something to keep yeah. him out there um, in the short term. Because yeah. I yeah. agree, it's critical for him. We lived through, you know, Jen, you and I are at the White House at the beginning, 2009, and, and Glenn, Glenn Beck, Beck was the thing, right? Yeah. And right, right. To your point, like he's he, got the Quiznos next to Obermans. Right. <laughs> he's got, there's a franchise, there's a, Series of franchises on that avenue, apparently. Um, but you know, yes, he 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 goes to start his own thing. The infrastructure of Fox is, as we know, enormously powerful, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a money printing machine, I'm sure, for Rupert. 
despite the fact that $800 million is leaving uh, to go pay Dominion and probably some more to pay others. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is that that power is is very different. I mean, I, I wonder I wonder if he doesn't, um, you know, try to reprise Rush Limbaugh and head to talk radio. Money is not there like it used to be. But, yeah, yep. that would be a platform. Yeah. Where he could be relevant and then do other ways to make money. Although he probably has, yeah. he got his he got to took money with him. Right. He's not. Well, they're going to pay off the contract, I think. You know, he hired a guy named Brian Friedman, who's a junkyard dog litigator yeah. on these my, things. My guess is that if you draw $3 million, uh, $3 million a night, five nights a week at Fox, you're uh, you're not rubbing nickels together to pay the light bill. Right. He's he's not going to be starving. No. He's young enough, though. He needs the next act, at least a big yep. public role. Yeah. Or he might try the risky streaming thing. Or he goes away from the year and comes back my hellish journey and, and flips the other way and the old Tucker's back with a bestseller and a, you know, re-loved by the establishment. There are a lot of moves he could make, and I think he is pretty cynical. What we don't know is, again, what's what's out there, right? I, I, yeah. I think there's some element that, again, Rupert and Lachlan didn't dig what they were hearing at cocktail parties and didn't like reading some of the text, but my hunch is there's a legal element to this that, that to your point, Murphy, tarnishes more uh, than than I think most people are, or some people at least, are, are talking about. Obviously, there's certainly intimations uh, about the lawsuit all over the newspaper today. Yeah, more to come. More text, more stuff. Delicious. Right. He could partner up with uh, Don Lemon, and they go on the road together. You know, Lemon and Aid. Okay. Well, any other cable news gossip to chew on? I think uh, I think we kind of handled that. I, I, I would like to touch on the next big Washington slappy fight albeit one with huge consequences which is the debt ceiling that yeah. little campfire is heating up they've got some some i think well-intentioned moderates in the problem-solving caucus and everything trying to balance the legit issue of fiscal responsibility because we we do spend like a drunken sailor even though it's out of fashion to really talk about it with the whole knock the economy into intensive care by yeah. playing, you know, third grade Congress games on the cliff here. Is anything changing as the stakes go up? What do you guys think? Seems like the same playbook to me from both sides. Yeah, but just to be clear, this is the most enormous week in the speakership. And I know it's been brief, but the speakership of Kevin McCarthy, right? The, 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 if he can land and get 218 votes, then he lives to negotiate, if you will, another day. Right. If they can't get 218 votes and look, let's be clear, there's moderates that have challenges with this bill. There's conservatives that have challenges with this bill. There are Iowans that have challenges with this bill. If he can't get to 218, then I don't I don't I think he's largely uh, irrelevant uh, in this debt ceiling fight because people will say, gosh, you had the whole you had months to put together your own plan and you can't figure out how to get to 218. And that's going to be death for him in terms of his relevance in this issue. So enormous stakes this week uh, for Kevin McCarthy, for Republicans in the House, and I think Republicans writ large in how they're going to play out the next few months of this debt crisis. Yeah. I mean, remember, we don't even rem know what he promised to the Marjorie Taylor Green wing to become speaker, right? And we know that some of it was certain cuts that he can't deliver on because it's just like he's not going to have the votes for that. So it's like the devil and the details and the devil, the de the details from the devil are coming, coming up this week. Um, but I mean, I don't it's it's every time we go through one of these fights here, 
It's like nobody panics really until you're actually like at the end of the last right. 12 hours. So it's going to be, and you even think about that as, you know, Gibbs, we lived through, it's like, you think about that when you're in a White House, like, when do we want the business community to really sound the alarm? You don't want to do it too early because if you do it too early, people are like, oh, OK, we've heard about it. Right. right? Yeah, and it right. all work out in the end. Why the false alarm? Yeah. You know like, right. Like, yeah. when does Mitch McConnell get involved behind the scenes? I mean, I'm sure he's involved now. But, you know, the reason that was raised last time was because he kind of finagled together a bunch of Republican senators to do it. So it's it's like we're not there yet in terms of the panic mode. But yeah, so this week, right. therefore, is, is mainly about whether Kevin McCarthy is still going to have the speakership and be a relevant actor. Great point. Historically, when in doubt, bet on the punt, because it's the easiest thing yes, for politicians to do, make the speech. But boy, oh boy, the Freedom Caucus, which has not read the manual on how this stuff is done in the tight situation he's got in the caucus really adds a wild pit bull running loose in the dog park kind of factor here. Yeah. And so I, <laughs> everybody, oh, don't worry, they'll work it out. Well, that assumes rational actors. So yeah. if I had to bet, I think McCarthy will get there by a vote. But boy, I wouldn't bet more than a dollar. No, I, I don't. Yeah, I'm not betting on rational actors. I, I bet <laughs> the pit bulls are not going to be tamed by yeah, Kevin McCarthy. Exactly. That's why this is so interesting. You know, to your point, Jen, like th this is not, this is the end of April. This thing is probably not going to play out in earnest until mid to late July, maybe even slightly later. So, you know, for him to put all these chips in the middle of the table this early is a big, big gamble. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, look, I think the challenge he also has is there are people on his side that are not accountable to anything. They, they live in districts where they get 80% of the vote. The only thing they're worried about is if somebody comes from their right. They've never voted for a debt increase, and they'll die never voting for a debt increase. In despite fact, the it's fact it's better for them to vote against everything. Exactly. Right. Oh, that's the incentive. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Then they can go yep. on the show with Fox's temporary, with Tucker's temporary <laughs> replacement and talk about how bold they are on spending, you know? Right. So, no, no, exactly. they, they don't. It's all primary politics. I yeah. showed them. Speaking of Republicans. And primary politics. Yeah, there's a little bit of zipping and zapping going on in the Republican presidential race. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about Trump, but let, let's put him on ice for a minute. Uh, though I do think the Biden announcement. My dream too, Murphy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Short-term ability to say, well, it's me and Biden now and engage on Biden. And maybe that'll crowd out some people. But Trump fatigue is real. We talked about that before. All the other candidates are making little moves. So Nikki Haley today former governor of South Carolina, former UN ambassador, gave a speech or is giving a speech. I don't know if it's happened already as we tape this at Has, the Susan yeah. B. Anthony Foundation, which is a Republican pro-life group. And she's pitching that she alone has the magic formula how to talk about abortion because she's trying to square the circle between the social conservatives who feel like they've got a moment now to run the table and the party regulars who are like, really, we're going to blow an election on this. Uh, so is that going to work for her? Has she found her gimmick? Because I'll tell you one thing, that FEC report scramble, four million cash on hand in the federal account. If she doesn't start raising real money soon, it, she'll be returning her rented minivan in Iowa on Labor Day with no campaign left, because that is a weak, weak fundraising number. Now she has room 
to get something going, but she needs something to happen. Is this her move? I haven't seen a text of the speech yet, but uh, I think the argument is going to be, I know the tone and the language to be able to sell the reasonable pro-life case. What do you think? Uh, either one of you, whoever wants to go first. What's the reasonable pro-life case? I, I don't, I don't, the, the reason, well, the, the challenge okay, for them but, is, I don't think they're, I mean, I think the challenge that she has is, and I saw some, some brief thing on it where she said, you know, we, we should have the consensus position. The consensus position was Roe versus Wade. Right. The Supreme Court wiped away right. the consensus position, and now we're dithering over the 35 percent. I'll make the argument the Republicans will make. You don't yeah. want to run a campaign backwards. It is what it is. We have to talk about what we're for going forward. We are not for DeSantis six-week ban madness. But middle of the second trimester, with exceptions, so no late-term abortions, there is a position Republicans have won plenty, plenty of national elections on. But you basically have to let go of the first, you can debate whether it's 18 weeks or 20, and then be about, with exceptions, abortion limitations after then. That's a defensible political position. And the question is, will she try to stake that out, or will she try yeah. a card trick? Well, just because, uh, you know, gender. I'm, I'm female, therefore I can make the argument, therefore I'm a better messenger for the hardcore stuff, which I think will be tricky. I mean, Tim Scott who has a, a grip in the evangelical lane because he's got that story in Iowa, has been not, not sharp. He needs work on how he answers press questions. He's, he hasn't had this yes. experience. Most yeah, of like them, he was surprised he was asked about abortion, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they're all used to be <laughs> like the that. senator in the red state where it's easy. They, they always start bad. The question is, who's got the learning curve? But if you were to decipher his hard-to-decipher answer, it was, I will pass the most pro-life bill that will pass my desk as president which is old Republican code word for basically can get enough support in the Congress to get to my desk, which instantly rules out three quarters of the scary stuff, maybe all of it. And I want to see how Nikki handles that, or will she go for the easy steroid shot to try to get the Iowa Christian conservative vote and beat Trump in the caucus? I mean, I just think the more that Mickey Haley and Tim Scott talk about abortion, the worse it is for them in general. And what you're saying about like a reasonable position to run on was when Roe v. Wade was still the law, right? right. So that's the rough. people were not as enraged across the country. And so they're confronting that in a different way. And I, I haven't seen the text of the speech either, but I feel like, I, well, some of the reporting suggested, and we'll see if this is true, is that she says something like, it doesn't matter if it's six weeks or 15 weeks. It's like, actually, it does well, it matter. It matters a lot. It matters to a right. lot of people. Right. But beyond that, you know, Tim, what I thought was so interesting, one, I think Tim Scott is compelling on his best days. I also think Nikki Haley is very compelling on her best days. Right. Um, and but but they wrap themselves into a pretzel on this issue because it's a hard issue for them to talk about. And that is about more than the issue. That is about are you being authentic to what you believe to voters and the public? Um, and that, I think, is where it becomes a problem for them. But I haven't seen her speech yet, so we'll see. Yeah, but Murphy, to, to use your example, um, if she lines up at 18 or 20 weeks, the debate moderator quickly says, is anybody for less than that? And every other person raises their hand, right? But no, an auction begins. Right. And immediately she ends up, she ends up as the least pro-life, most pro-choice Republican, yeah. which is an island that is like about an inch 
uh, an no, inch I wide. Disagree. An, I disagree. This is, I think, yeah. often Republicans like to project on Democrats for all socialist, wild-eyed maniacs, and Democrats like to project that Republicans for all pro-life zealots who can hardly wait to win the election. I mean, lose the election. The good news only—I've heard that on this podcast. Only half of the candidates are, but 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 <laughs> I it, there's something to be the only one on the stage holding that twenty, but still pro-life. We're see. You can't avoid this issue in a Republican primary process. In a general, in, in, in a, a general primary. election, yes. I don't think she gets past Iowa being at eighteen okay. or twenty weeks. I don't. And but let me just say this: I will sponsor a fifty-state Republican abortion debate. Let's go to every single state and have Republicans in the Republican primary do nothing but talk about abortion for the next year and a half. All I know is that that is. That is that could that that is nothing could be better. That's the Democrat for Democrats dream. in this election. Nothing could be better. Yeah, that that won't happen. But if you can get out of Iowa with a coalition of pro-life evangelicals and party regulars, beat Trump there, which I think you can do, and then go to pro-choice Republican New Hampshire and beat him again, then you get to write your abortion ticket for the general election. Particularly yeah. if you're from South Carolina. But anyway, we're, we're going to wait and see. I want to see if Nikki has found a way to be the uncola on this and get an advantage. Because yeah. if she doesn't come up with something soon, which would give her an angle to get attention and raise money, she's in real trouble. Now, what about Christie? He's out sending huge trial balloons that he's going to run. He's going to beat up everybody. He went to New Hampshire, attacked Trump, attacked DeSantis, went after the Disney War. I mean... I don't know if he gets himself elected, but there there's going to be a lot of bite marks on the other candidates, which yes. could be catalytic. Well, bite marks on the other candidates, though, might be good for Trump, right? I mean, yeah, though he might get the worst bite marks from Christie, might, the once like, loyal pit bull who has turned on the owner. That's true, but yeah. Trump might like kick off the kick. Who knows? And the more Chris Christie's bite marking, biting other candidates, it's like good for Trump. I mean, the thing about Chris Christie. When I still remember in 2012, when I mean, we were on the campaign in 2012, when yeah. he came with Obama, they went to New Jersey, they went to all of they hugged. I know that's probably the hug he most regrets in the world. But, you know, I was thinking in that that moment was like, this is a guy who's like taking care of his state, dealing with a disaster. He's not afraid to be seen with a Democratic president. Obviously, he's lived to regret that. Now, the example he gave, which I still makes me laugh about why he's the guy to take on Trump is like him calling out Marco Rubio during a debate, which, by the way, wasn't exactly like that courageous or bold or anything. So I guess we'll kind of see what bite he has in him. But I don't know. I, I don't know. Is there a lane for him, do you think? Well, that that's the argument, because the best Chris Christie case story was New Hampshire. Yeah. Which is really the only state he made a big play in because he had such limited resources, which itself is a tell. But Christie finished six, but he did really hurt Rubio. Yeah. So where they knew him best, they didn't vote for him. You know, in New Hampshire, he got about, I think, seven, seven and a half percent of the vote. But he was catalytic. He, he did put a hurt on somebody. So I think one for punditry entertainment value, the idea of him running around like a madman in the early debates could be pretty good. Yeah, maybe somebody finally attacked Trump. <laughs> right, right. And show the others how to do it. Because yeah. all these guys come up in the Chamber of Commerce world of, you know, respectful politics. They've never had Trump because Trump's going to do his favorite device. You know, well, I don't know. People are talking. They're talking in Virginia. Young Kin, Chinese name could be a robot. I don't know. People are talking about it. 
Tim Scott, Bachelor. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. People are asking. Ron DeSantis, crazy parties, young girl. I don't know. People are, and they've never dealt with anything like that in their political lives. Christy, the brawler in the early stages, yeah. the summer debate in August, may teach him what they need to know. So I don't know. I think he could have a huge impact without ever winning the nomination. He has two things that you can't bet against. He has no fear and he has nothing to lose. Yeah. Right. Mm. There's, he's not going to. There, yeah, there's there's no meeting where Chris Christie is sitting down with his lieutenants and their theory is. <laughs> yeah. What's the downside? Let's play, the, yeah. <laughs> let's play this safe. He's pulled the pin on the grenade and he's walking into the meeting. And so, I, I, and look, he's smart, right? He's smart. He's yeah. really good on TV. He's really good on these debates. Just before I logged in to record this podcast, I was doing a quick hit on MSNBC, uh, and there was some reporting by the Trump reporter for MSNBC that Trump had said something on Truth Social about he may not participate in these debates in August. So that could be a tell that uh, that he thinks that Chris Christie, I mean, he clearly would be the target for everybody, but the, that Chris Christie and others may, may come at him. Right, but that's a bluff. Donald Trump will never let there be national microphones if he can't. I totally part. agree. I, I, I agree. Yes. He's afraid of that. He hasn't figured out that. Yeah. It's his negotiating tactic to get what he wants most about who is and who isn't probably going to be on that stage. Yeah. I would say before we get off this Republican merry-go-round, let's touch on, on Ron DeSantis a little bit because, look, I think you and I, Murphy, we've talked about this a lot. I know I've had these conversations with Jen over the years. National polling in a Republican primary is not worth a whole lot. It's not how we pick nominees. No, the Milt Gertzman rule, no national poll means a damn thing till until after the first contest in a primary among people they don't know. What is interesting, I put an asterisk on what Murphy just said. What is interesting about the Wall Street Journal poll is in December, DeSantis led Trump by 14 points. In April, Trump leads DeSantis by 13 points. Okay, if you bought the IPO of Ron DeSantis... Your stock is deeply underwater. It's not worth a whole lot. That doesn't mean the stock can't come back. But boy, that answer he gave in Japan on his international whatever endorsement. Tour. Yeah, that was something yeah, else. I mean, but to your point, Murphy, like talk about somebody like you. We talked about Tim Scott not being able to answer a question. How, are you that thin skinned? Are you that defensive that somebody in Japan asks you a question about slipping poll numbers and you don't play the game and you don't say, well, I'm not a candidate, but you may not be familiar with my record in Florida, but let me tell you what we've done. Yeah, the more people who get to know, blah, blah. But if he gives that answer, nobody ever sees that video. It's it's boring. And if you can't play the game. Yes, I agree with that. I think he has been, the idea caught on because people were desperate. He was a proof of concept. You don't have to go with Trump. Now he's stumbling. The finance guys are all in the panic, calling up others. That said, nobody's really watching other than hobbyists or paid pontificators he is showing a lack of skills which can either get better or it's going to kill him but keep in mind these national polls are a noise meter of what was on cable tv a week ago yeah and for two weeks it was alan bragg who's the bernie sanders da is going after trump boy i don't mind him going after clinton on his channel blah 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 so the tribal world fell in with trump just be careful. These are sands in the wind here. Um, but your point about this, Santa's not being able to perform and finance people. I mean, young Ken is getting calls. Brian Kemp, who could really be formidable if he thinks he can raise the money and gets in, could be formidable. Tim Scott, if he can up his performance, 
being the only sunny conservative and with that evangelical story. Um, I think there are a lot of contenders out there, but you're right. DeSantis is blowing it in the preseason. Yeah. Well, polls don't matter much. Neither do endorsements. Otherwise, Barack Obama wouldn't have become president. I think we can all confirm from our end. But it is also, as you just said, I mean, people projected upon him what they wanted him to be, what they envisioned him to be, right? Which was like a conservative who was tough and inspiring or whatever they wanted him to be. And then it's like the stories that have stuck out to me most are the reporters who have gone and kind of talk to donors. Yes, but like talk to people who go to events and people come out of these events and they're like, I mean, I was really excited about seeing him and maybe he had an off day. <laughs> right. Might like, have the flu. Maybe he did. Maybe yeah. that's him. You know, I mean, like right. it's, right. you know, maybe he's yeah. hit his max. <laughs> yeah. um, we don't know. Yeah, You know, they all walk in thinking less filling tastes great. And then they taste the beer and they spit it out. That is a fundamental problem. And they're like, wait, no, no. This is like, I wish I just want to yeah. like see him on paper and like on Twitter. I, this is not what I envisioned. Right. So, but the vacuum is still there to be filled by somebody. People yeah, think, yeah. well, if Scott goes down, it's automatically Trump. Uh, let's see. Who will the Rick Santorum be of this year is the question. Yeah. Let me just say that Trump brilliantly has laid this trap, Murphy, to try to get indicted so many times that he gets the nomination. And brilliant. I mean, just brilliant. The one thing I would say, and I'm going to say this, please don't tweet at me. Don't text Murphy. Well, okay, text Murphy. No, no, no. Don't Tweet send it. us email. I'm going to say something. I'm not comparing the two candidates. Just listen to what I have to say. Jen knows what I'm going to say here, probably too. We watched Barack Obama the first few months of running for president. It was, and he hates when I tell this story, not pretty. Right. Okay. He wasn't the best version of himself. <laughs> True of many candidates. To be honest, everyone came to an event in Iowa or New Hampshire or someplace else and expected to see the speech that he was going to give be the convention speech in yeah. 2004. It takes a, this is, this is a really hard thing to do. Running for president is not like running for any other office. Right. And it, and, and to your point, Murphy, you said this a while ago, the, the ones who become the nominees get better at it over time. Yeah. Right. They wear well. That's the real skill improvement. Yeah. They improve, they get better. They figure out, Oh boy, we used to we used to do this in Iowa. We always in these town hall meetings and it's flat, nobody claps, nobody's excited. We figured out how to fix that, right? Fired up, ready to go. We told, you know, he tells the story, boom, it's, you know, and it's just those little tricks that fix how you're doing it, fix the answers on the trail, totally and that agree. kind of stuff. It's just going to be interesting to see whether, you know, to some degree, is he is he somebody who can grow into the role of being a candidate? I, I happen to believe you can tell somebody. You know, his whole thing is, I doesn't work the room. Somebody can tell him and yell at him, work the room, okay? You remember this, Jen. Barack Obama didn't make political phone calls. He didn't want to make endorsement phone calls. Cold Vulcan intellect. I remember all And that. then I showed up in the back of the van driving to the airport in Chicago with the cell phone in the call book. Hey, sir, we're right, calling right, a, right, right. we're calling 17-year-olds in Iowa today. True story, right? And he ended up having to do it. The question, though, is, is there something, the defensiveness the prickliness, the thin skinness that is inherent to them yeah. and isn't something that can be learned or taught out. Well, we're going to find out. DeSantis is going to go into the whirlpool. He's either going to swim 
or we won't be talking about them anymore in 100 days. Yeah. With that, Jen, unless you have something to add, I think it might be time to do what they always say to do on radio and its modern cousin, the podcast, which is, when in doubt, play the hits. It's Listener Mailbag. All right. If you, dear listeners, have a question for the mailbag, all you got to do is email it to us. We have a team of crack staff who go through it. The meaner they are, the gives, the more likely to get on the air. Okay, it is hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spotify, Bob's podcasting server, anywhere you can rate us. That helps get the podcast out to more people. So now let's go to the questions. Our first question is for Jen from Christopher. Christopher writes, should disappointment over the lack of an on-air retraction component as part of the Dominion settlement with Fox not change the calculus of whether or not Dems should appear on the network? Should progressives take every opportunity to make Fox viewers aware of all the et cetera, et cetera, uh, or not? Big tactical question. What do you think? Uh, Okay, Christopher, nice to meet you. First of all, Fox executives don't really care, I don't think, if progressives or Democrats appear on their network. Um, The thing that you have to consider if you're a Democrat, and everyone does not agree with me on this at all, is that Fox still has a large number of viewers, listeners who are Democrats, who are independents, who you still may want to reach. So I'm not suggesting go have somebody on Sean Hannity every night. But just like I have a lot of issues with disinformation on Facebook, Tic Tac has all sorts of stuff going on with it. Twitter, I still use those platforms. I still think Democrats need to appear on Fox because otherwise you are hurting yourself and taking yourself off an important part of the playing field. I agree. It's a microphone. Use it. Yeah. There you go. Smart answer from a very, very, very smart political strategist. Question from Austin. Recently... Tim Scott announced he was launching an exploratory committee for president. What are the advantages or disadvantages of announcing this instead of an actual candidacy? Oh, okay. So <laughs> it, it, it is legal, really. An exploratory We called in our best legal mind for yeah, this question. No, here None I other am. than, than non lawyer Michael Murphy. The Buzz Sullivan School of Arc Welding and Law. So the. The, the bottom line is when you're in an exploratory mode and you got to be very careful because you can say one thing and blow it all up. You're not an announced candidate, but you can go out and explore, which means talking to voters. You can have one big team kind of feel their way through the preliminaries. The minute you say, I intend to be a candidate, shazam, everything changes. So if you have a super PAC, your hench people who are working at the campaign then spin off to the super PAC but they can't talk to you anymore. You can't have coordination. You can tell donors, hey, send money to the super PAC, but you can't call up who's ever running the super PAC and say, hey, I need a dancing poodle ad and uh, I just did the dog show in Dubuque and it'll be a big hit on the internet too. No coordination (laughs) on campaign strategy. So the exploratory committee, the upside is you kind of do a little trial run and your team can kind of work together and share the, the, the formula and then wham, the wall drops and away you go. The downside to exploratory committees is you sneeze wrong, you trigger the wall before you want to, maybe. You can get fined. And I think the biggest downside is they're a little clever by half. 
quit exploring. You're not exploring. You're running. You're using an accounting loophole. Oh, God, another Washington, blah, blah, blah. So I'm always, always against public exploratory committees. Privately, sniff around, do some polls. That's good. When you're actually out there with the kabuki, I don't love it. So, of course, my advice to Tim Scott, a candidate I have hopes for, is drop the exploratory thing and announce quick. Now, the mega question. For Robert Gibbs. (laughs) This is a good one here. No pressure, Gibbs. No pressure. Yeah. I know. We've got two former White House press secretaries here. So Eleanor, Eleanor, the deadly questioner. She's been working on this for a while. Here you go, Gibbs. Fastball over the plate. Front row. What is your favorite press conference you have ever watched, been involved in, and why? Or the worst? Well, let me give you an answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna be Jen Saki's spokesperson now and give an answer uh, for for kind of both of us. I don't know if this would be her answer, but uh, she reminded me as we were talking through these questions uh, about a very fun day in the White House late in 2010. We were negotiating with Congress about how, how to basically extend the tax cuts. How were we going to get a little bit more economic stimulus? What was the budget and what were what is what was everything going to look like here in in kind of the lame duck session? And I knew on the schedule that Bill Clinton was coming in to see President Obama. And I mentioned to him offhand, you know, in an earlier meeting, hey, if you know, if Clinton thinks we should basically cut this deal to extend the Bush tax cuts in in a trade for additional economic stimulus, if he agrees, you know, we should figure out how to make that public. So this is late, like on a Friday afternoon. It's Christmas party season in the White House. I literally, literally had my feet up on the desk in in upper press in the in the press secretary's office, and I see Barack Obama and Bill Clinton walk past my door into the depths and bowels of the upper press, and I'm like, "Holy shit, what's going on?" So I scuttle up real fast, and they're just basically walking around looking for somebody. And I said, "Hey," uh, I literally said, "What are you two guys up to?" <laughs> and literally, they said, well, we were trying to get in the press room, but uh, the door's locked and we don't think there's anybody in there. And I'm like, what do you guys want to go in the press room about? Um, it literally was like two kids asking permission to go do something. So like <laughs> the, the the great thing was there's like two people in the actual press briefing room because nothing was scheduled. Probably two cameramen that were trying to catch some sleep. And we basically, I said, okay, you guys want to go in the press room? You got to give me like two minutes because I got to find some actual reporters, right? Katie Hogan gets on the phone, makes an announcement. Two minutes, two minutes to a statement by the president. Everybody comes scurrying. And people remember President Obama, former President Clinton go out there. They do a few questions. And then President Obama says, look, guys, I'm late. I got to get up to the Christmas party. Uh, but but if you guys want to, you know, ask former President Clinton, a few questions. Go ahead. Barack Obama leaves. I don't know how long Jen Bill Clinton was there, but I think it was like 45 minutes. And he was happy as just as he could possibly be. Leaning on the side of the podium. It was just like. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. He was having the greatest old time and I let it go. I was the one who could call last question. I think toward the end, I finally did call last question. But in reality, and people say, well, I don't understand why, why don't, you know, all these stories like, oh, Bill Clinton makes Barack Obama look weak and giving this long press statement. I'm like, well, you, you people overthink everything. And they said, well, why didn't you cut it off? I'm like, because I was having fun watching it. This was great. This was, this was Bill Clinton in his element many years, uh, many years after he left the White House. I will say, it, you know, Bill Clinton flew with us on Air Force One and he popped up the steps. 
Before you know it, he was up in the cockpit saying hello, back in the kitchen saying hello. He just loves being with people, and it was fun to watch. It was a very memorable event, a very memorable story, and uh, lots of fun. Confess secretly, as Press Flack, you were thinking, maybe Brock will learn a few tricks here from the master, too. A little of this might rub off. The only thing I could really think was I had a real defined purpose in getting the two of them to be for something that eventually we got through Congress. And I was just thinking, just as any press person does, once you get your message out, kill everything because you don't know what's going to come next. Yep. Don't compete with yourself. Exactly. That's that's the one thing I was worried about. And I was competing with watching just the fun of this all happening. Jen, what do you remember from that? Oh, I remember that before they got to you, they got to the press assistants and you yes. know, President Obama knew who they were and knew what they did. And he was like, hey, um, can you open these doors for us? And I think it was Katie Hogan or Ben Finkenbeiner who came running upstairs, I think where I was, to be like, oh, my God, what what do we do? They're trying to get in there. And and when when they wanted to go in there, we had to go kind of. Because as you said, it was like a Friday evening or Friday late. Yeah. So we had to go late kind afternoon. of like run through where the press sits in the White House and just say like, get up, get up, put your shoes on, get your notebook, <laughs> exactly. get a pen, comb your hair, whatever. Right, exactly. Get in your put hair. a sport coat on. Yes, exactly. That was the other realm. Obama had a saying for this. He would say, the bear is loose. Oh, yeah. Right? The, the bear is off Bear's his loose. chain. And that was exactly, yeah. we were, I was, we were watching- Two bears. So Two bears. Two bears were loose. Okay, we're going to close the show with a new special money-making scheme here that we're, we may make <laughs> at least that. $4 from. Gibbs, explain the new Hacks on Tap College of Interesting Knowledge book club. So we have guests come on all the time. We read a lot of books, too. And we want to share what guests are reading, what we're reading, what we've read before that are interesting. So we're setting up a book club. We're going to share some books that we love. Some may be political, some may not. We're going to ask our guests to come up with some books that are on their mind that they like to read. Uh, Again, maybe political, maybe not. We hope you'll go read these books too. Go buy these books, spend some of your good money on a good book, and uh, enjoy what you'll get out of it. So, Gibbsy, I'm I'm a bibliophile. I want to read some of this stuff. Where and how do you actually get the books? Hold on, I'm Googling bibliophile. But in the event that you want to buy some actual fun books, go to hacksontap.com slash book club. Oh. Our recommendations will be there. Point and click, order a book, sit back and enjoy, learn a lot. Some of it could be political history. Some could be- I love it. Just stuff that we're having fun reading. So Jen, kick us off. What's your book? I'll do mine and gives you close. The inaugural recommendation. Oh, I love it. Okay, I'm going to do two because I'm just going to cheat. Um, One yeah. is- Third Girl from the Left by Christine Barker. It's all—it's her story. She was in one of the original casts of A Chorus Line, and it all takes place during the early years of the AIDS epidemic. When people didn't even call it AIDS. Her brother was partners with Perry Ellis, who died of AIDS. And so that's part of the story, too. It's an amazing book. The other one is Age of Vice, which has been on a lot of bestseller lists, and is but is really, really amazing. Um, so that's my second one. Sounds filthy. I'm in. Gibbs, what do you got? Well, we're not as cool or hip or contemporary as Jen. I'm going to give you two political books that if you haven't read are must-reads. The first is, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. All the good campaign books, of all the great campaign books, this is the greatest, right? So pick this up and read it. It is not a sm- it, 
It's a doorstopper. It's a big read. So, but enjoy it. Again, Joe Biden's in that book. Uh, you'll learn a good bit. The second one is um, a book by uh, Richard Goodwin, uh, um, the late husband of Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, a speechwriter for Kennedy and Johnson, a young idealistic liberal. Uh, his book is called Remembering America. I read this book in college. I've read it many times. I cannot tell you how excited I was to find in a used bookstore last year a hard cover copy of this. I grabbed it off the shelf and ran to the register to pay for it. Remembering America. Murphy, what do you got? I didn't know we had to have two books here. My God, I was told one, but I have a thousand You can do books, one. So we, we know you've only read one, so just do that. All right, I'll, I'll do a fun one. You got to go to one of the used book sites for this. It might not be, even be in our store, so there goes my three cents. But uh, You Are the Boss by uh, Ed Flynn, who was the old Bronx Party Democratic boss. And he got so tired of reading about bosses and being bad. He wrote a book in defense of political bosses. It's a lot of fun. But the shiny new Amazon one you can get for you history nuts out there. It's only 812 pages, so we're tie up for a while. This is called The War Diaries, 1939 to 1945, by Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook, who was Churchill's military advisor and was with him at every conference. Now, don't get the old one, which is all cleaned up. Get the new one. Oh, Winston's been drinking again. I think we're invading Norway. Uh, it, was, it was a love-hate history of Churchill at his best and worst during World War II from his military advisor's point of view. Also, all the meetings with Roosevelt, it's all in there, and it's a diary, so you can read through it and get his day-to-day -day thoughts. It is a fascinating history. So go to hacksontap.com slash book club for recommendations. We'll be adding to it. Jen, so much thank you for being here, uh, for joining us. I told that story at the beginning. I was so happy to tell that guy that I knew Jen Saki. And I, I thank you for coming. I, I, I love being with you and I love uh, sharing stories with you. Thank you. Well, Gibbs is my favorite boss I've ever had. And Mike Murphy, you seem pretty good, too. So, <laughs> Well, luckily, my staff me. is tied up in the other room, duct tape, so they can't, can't deny it. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much. And again, folks, we're telling you, if you only watch one show, go on Sundays at noon Eastern or TiVo it or save it on your DVR on MSNBC to the hot new show Inside with Jen Psaki. It is must-watch TV. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen. Thank you.